This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey guys, before we get into the Full Blast podcast with my buddy Mareko, let me just talk to you about our sponsor, Axwax. I just want to thank Axwax for signing on for us again after we did a few episodes. They are pumped. You guys did a great job. You bought some Axwax. This is great stuff. And actually, you, Mareko, introduced me to Axwax. I'd never heard about it before sure. you started talking about it. And it's a great product. It's a small company out in Oregon, and they're making all-natural, food-safe wax that you can use on whatever. You can put it on your axe. You can put it on your hammer, your handles. You can put it on your boots, and whatever you want. And f- the great thing is, is know, some people say to me, I say, why would I, why do I care about a food-safe axe? I'm like, well, you know, it's not about that. I mean, some people make culinary knives like Mareko Bomasi and Will Stelter and all these guys and Jason Knight and Josh Prince and Josh Weston and Josh Scott and Josh Smith. All, every Josh and Quentin <laughs> Middleton and Salem <laughs> Every Josh. So, and then Salem Straub. And these guys are making culinary knives and have the opportunity to use um, a food-safe product that you can tell your customers about is an added bonus, and I love it. I think it's great. Um, so if you go to axwax.us and put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off. So get yourself a couple pucks and get yourself some Axwax. And thanks again, guys. Uh, Axwax, uh, thank you very much for sponsoring the podcast again. And thank you to the listeners of the podcast for buying it. So keep buying it, and let's get on with it. I just... My guest is a special person to me. Mareko Mamasi is my friend. He's also one of the co-hosts of Knife Talk that I've been on with him for almost three, it's like three years. If I were to have, I do have, I have a Mount Rushmore of American knife makers. Mareko's always going to be on it. And he's going to be on it. And I think in a lot of cases, he's going to be on most people's Mount Rushmore. So, I appreciate you being here. We talk all the time, but it, this is going to be different than knife talk, and I'm really excited that you're here. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate you having me on, man. How are you doing with the snow? Uh, <laughs> uh, we, I mean, as we're recording this, uh, and I, I tr- I'll try to keep it present as possible, but we just spoke yesterday. It started raining. The snow is actually starting to slush out and clear away. Thankfully, it's going to warm up a little bit, and it's not going to become a crazy icy mess. So it's going good. Although here it's around pre- my shop, it's uh, it's still pretty snowed in. I My shop is at a at a friend of mine's property and you know he's his his driveway is clear but uh where i'm where my shop is uh it's still you know eight ten inches of snow so i actually parked by the house and hoofed myself over here but you grew up in in near olympia washington right i I, yeah i basically have lived in olympia washington my entire life has there been snow like this when you were growing up not my no i think the closest don't you think it's weird yeah it's, it's global warming, baby. Oh, but, uh, so. I mean, it's, yeah, this is, this is pretty, I even asked my, my wife who has also, who also grew up in Olympia and, and this is the, this is the craziest snow we've experienced in our lives in this area. Um, and you know, it's not crazy, like, especially compared to like even Eastern Washington or even further East to the East coast. Uh, but it is unusual for around here and, you know, we got 
one snowplow per city, basically, who only plow emergency routes uh, and places where fire trucks or emergency vehicles need to drive um, most often. Otherwise, they just let the rest of the streets go. I actually, I took a video I need to send to you and Craig because we talked about it the other day about how they don't do shit, do a damn thing for any of the side streets, but all the main streets look great. Um, it's so bizarre. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just, bizarre to me that it's bizarre to me. Number one, when I saw, I mean, you sent, you had some pictures of the snow and I, I just, it never dawns on me that there's, I mean, obviously there's snow in like, you know, Northern California and stuff like that, but I just assumed sure. that the climate in your area is so like humid that you don't, you wouldn't get snow anyway, but I, what the hell do I know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty temperate here. And so when it does snow like this, it may be like here, at least on, in Western Washington, where I'm living, um, it's, it's, it, it doesn't snow crazy like this, maybe, but once every like six, honestly, six or seven years. Um, and, and usually when it does, it's, a a mess. It's an absolute just mess. But this year we got lucky with uh, the rain and warming things up and it's just kind of going away uh, in a safe manner versus past years. Like the city just let it go and it's just fr- it would maybe sprinkle a little bit or freezing rain and then and everything turns into an ice skating rink. Pretty gnarly. But the, When yeah. I was a kid when we would get snow days, it was fine. I mean, I grew up in New York City, so I mean, people were able to get on the subway and get to work and stuff like that. But like it didn't affect me and it didn't really snow didn't really affect me until I became an adult. You know, my wife has mm, to sure. get to work and then she's because she she's mandated. You know, the the thing, you know, you know you th- you think that like if you can't go in, you can't go in. But people in healthcare, a lot of them, especially if they're affiliated with a the hospital, they're mandated by the state to come in. So you can't call in for a snow day. So as we grew, as I got older and then we actually moved out of the city and we moved up to Westchester where you had to drive. When yeah. we were living in Brooklyn, she can just hop on the subway and then go up to, you know, uh, you know, whatever hospital she was working at. But because now we're adults, there's so much more snow days. It's not fun anymore because no. there's so much that goes into like preparing her to get out of her, into her life. Sure. And even when my kid was young enough to, uh, and she needed to be, you know, home, you know, she needed to be accompanied. She couldn't go. She used to have to come with me to my, my metal shop. Sure. This was the worst <laughs> her. She has memories. I went the last metal shop I was in was in Peekskill, and it was, a you know, actually, I give a lot of credit to those guys. They I learned a lot in terms of, that's the metal shop I, we did, like, mostly finishing work. But because we didn't have uh, anyone to watch her when she was younger, I'd have to bring her to the break room, and she would hang out for the whole day in this disgusting break room. And they had they gave her Wi-Fi. We, you know, we hooked her up her iPad so she could watch TV. But I always felt very guilty. Mm. because I couldn't call in because it was just like, I mean, I could, we could walk, I could walk to work. So I bring my kid, pack my kid. My kid was a little bit older than your son, but I just remember this feeling of guilt that I'm, I'm picking my kid to a break room in a metal shop and she's going to hang out there all day in this disgusting break room. (laughs) Kids are resilient, man. They're, I mean, they honestly, are, but you still feel guilty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guarantee, like, it's that kind of shit that I feel like a lot of friends even look back on and say, you know, I, I don't know if she's going to look back with, like, warm, glowing memories of it. But I, it's, like, how much it's really going to impact her 
Yeah, you know, honestly, who knows? Of course. I, I doubt it's know, hardly anything. Well, I mean, I'm not too worried about that, but I mean, I just remember at the time, actually, the one thing that I remember yeah. was Hurricane Sandy. When Hurricane okay. Sandy hit New York and it flooded Lower Manhattan, I mean, I've, I mean, you've, not, I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was like apocalypse. It cut, you know, it, it, it you know, the, there was power outage in Westchester for a week, and you couldn't go to, she couldn't go to school for a week. And oh, she wow, was yeah. in middle school, and she must have been like middle school, third grade or something. No, not middle school. She was like third grade. She had to come with me for a whole week and sit in the shop. And I just remember I felt guilty because it yeah. was like I should be in a better situation where I can hire a man, nanny or something like that. And obviously it wasn't the case yeah, because, sure. you know, with our job, my wife's job, she was bringing in the uh, health insurance and, you know, her job is, you know, she's saving people's lives and helping people. Oh, for I'm, sure. you know, fucking welding a you know corner here and there and hitting it with a little sandpaper. <laughs> it wasn't as big of a deal, but I, you know, I talk to her now and we think about those snow days and she has fond memories of some of them, but she also has memories of me being really stressed out about it. Mm. So sure. I wonder, and, and, and I think about it because I think about for you, you want, another thing is because, you know, we are solitary workers. You know, if I, we, we talk about this on, on Knife Talk. If we're not working, we're not making money. Right. And, and I wondered the stress. I was thought about the stress for you especially. Like, all right, the snow hasn't come in fucking seven years. Yeah. And now I can't even make it to the, out of the, you know, to the mailbox. Right. Yeah. Yeah, this is my first time in the shop since last Wednesday. It was the last time I was in the shop. So, yeah, <laughs> it, it definitely it hurts on productivity side but i i just tried to you know when i was at the house i just tried to you know what else could i do but just be there and do the things with the kid and have fun and make the most of it and we built some crazy like snow dragon fort and we went sledding all a bunch of times i walked probably i probably put in a solid like six six or seven miles maybe eight miles of walking through like shin high snow uh to dragging his ass in the sled <laughs> to take him sledding or to go play with his buddy uh who lives a few blocks away and you just made the most of it of course though but that's the, the fond memories that he's yeah. gonna have Hopefully. My kids' memories are going to be like, I had to sit in this goddamn locker room <laughs> and watch fucking my, there's a bullshit on, on, on whatever, you know, I, I just, I, it's interesting to me because it's like snow days now are in my life are more of like this, it's a, it's a, it's a real stress, a real yeah. stress. Well, and I think it's a reflection as, you know, like you were saying, when, when you're a kid, it's a blast. As you get older, it sucks. But I think it's a reflection of our level of responsibility as well. Yeah. For sure. So, you know, as your kid, you don't, you got nothing basically that you're responsible for. Yeah, zero. So snow's the best. <laughs> snow is the yeah. best. Days off from school are the best. But when you get older and you're responsible for that kid that doesn't have school or all that and getting your wife to work, yeah, it's a huge pain in the ass. <sighs> I, not, I can't wait fun. until it warms up. <laughs> I can't wait till it warms up. Yeah. So, you know, the funny thing is I was actually kind of like looking at your work in general, the, the body of your work. Okay. And I was, I was really, on my Instagram? really on Instagram. It's a mess. My your, Instagram's a mess. <laughs> but I was, I was picking and choosing the work. I was looking at the knives, the finished okay. knives. Yeah, sure. And one of the things I came to the conclusion was, not, a, I mean, it's my own conclusion or, or thought yeah. that I loved about your work. Besides the fact that, um, your, the, 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 your attention to detail is second to none. You, your Damascus patterns are so unique. I, I mean, there's stuff you just don't see very often. You don't see. 
Yeah. You have there is a simple elegance to the entire body of your knives. Like there's this like the funny thing is is I think about when I when I look at your you like the 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 knife makers that you have in your calendars. Mm. There's um an ornate quality to all the work. There's a lot of I mean it's very ornate. Sure. But when I look at your work, there's this simple elegance that's just so I mean it's like all I can think of is, and I hope you take that as a compliment, it's a simplicity in terms of the shape is just very approachable. The materials, the handle, the sh- everything about it, it's this perfect elegance. Yeah. Yeah. That's been a, that's been a big goal. And I do take it as a compliment. So thank you. Um, I, I've very purposefully tried to do that with my work. I, you know, I used to think that, you know, having mosaic pins or having all these crazy spacers and stuff and doing all this stuff to glitz out my knives was what was going to make them more valuable and and, and uh, appealing and, and interesting to people. But I, I kind of, ste- I did that for, I feel like initially, and then I started stepping back and and finding, realizing, like, if I got rid of the spacer and the, just even just, so I ha, typically I have, like, a, a a black G10 and, like, some sort of non-ferrous metal, whether it's copper, brass, bronze, something, um, and then another piece of G, black G10 as a spacer between right. the integral bolster transition and the handle. Even just taking that out to make, just make it a, a very bare bones, wooden handle, metal blade simple knife is super fucking complicated because by adding that spacer in it gives you a little bit of fudging room to make mistakes and and or i guess for everything to not just fit absolutely perfectly because it especially having those black spacers in there they help take up any um any kind of mismatches yeah it's a little buffer and so just taking that out um complicates things in ways you do not foresee and i realized that the the simpler you try to make and uh especially or at least like an integral chef's knife look uh the more complicated it is to actually construct and put together um and so i've i've tried to do a lot of things to keep things to keep my work simple but like you said like approachable uh appealing i want the lines to look nice um, the, I think another great compliment Neil Kamimura gives me is that uh, it looks like it's moving when it's standing still. Like he just like yeah. all the lines. Like I, I've I've always really I've never really been a car guy, but I love the look of I love looking at cars. I love the yeah. lines, the curves, the contours, the edges where they come to peaks and where they decide to you know ro- uh, roll things out and smooth things. Out. Like it's so interesting to me, um, and. I, I and so I think some of that aesthetic appeal that I appreciate definitely goes into uh, the look of my work. And it's, so yeah, I definitely so, take it as a compliment. It's so fascinating too because you know you're you're dealing with you know the contrast between you know the wood and metal is always this. It's a very very it's a very very difficult transition because. You know, there's so much like history behind it. I mean, you know, that I mean, you know, knives and tools have handles and generally sure. speaking, they're all not usually one piece. It's always like these tradition, these contrasts in terms of 
the handle material and then the, and then the blade material. Sure. And your your the the Damascus the mosaic Damascus patterns that you do are so vibrant. They, I mean, movement. When you say Neil Cameron says they have a lot of movement, he's. I mean, that's perfect. There's there's that's. I mean, at this point in the game. When people talk about Damascus in general, I mean, really, it's about the movement. I mean, I don't know yeah. what else really other than that ability to kind of lead your eye out. And when I look at your work, it's almost, it's always, especially the way you forged your Damascus. Sure. And you put it together. There's like, it's almost like a raise. It's raised, but it's also like a blooming. I see it like a blooming and it's always moving forward and growing towards the tip, which is kind of hard to do. But that simple, but then that makes it more complicated. But when you look at the whole thing is together, you have this juxtaposition between this very vibrant handle, a very vibrant blade, um, and then these very intricate between the Japanese cowboy style faceted handles mm-hmm. and just everything. But there's always, I always step back and I always see he makes it a very simple, elegant knife. But when you look, when you kind of like look into it, it's so complicated. Sure. One, even just thinking about the materials themselves, I mean, they're so diametrically opposed. They, you know, the steel contrasted with the wood. And so it's, it's creating a relationship there. And one of the things that has always been important to me, like I, I wanted my, I've always wanted my knives to look nice, but I always wanted them first and foremost to perform well as a tool more than anything. And, uh, you know, while I'm great at the blade, forging, Damascus making, grinding and stuff. I I think what's most important about what I do, or one of the, I guess, not the most important, but it is a really important element to the work that I create is is the handle work that I do. And to me, the handle is, is the relationship between the user and the business, basically the business end of the tool, right? The cutting yeah. edge, the knife, and the blade. Um, and so it's always been really important to me that um, it it is not only aesthetic aesthetically appealing, but also ergonomic and very comfortable, and 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 really encourages that relationship, so that you want to use that tool. You know, I worked in restaurants, and and I spent a lot of time chopping and slicing and dicing things up, and you know, there were plenty of those knives that I used that fucking sucked. Like they were just a pain in the ass. And I'm sure you going through culinary school and working in restaurants yourself, you've had some of those experiences too. Um, and using that knowledge and that experience to my advantage, I've tried to kind of carve a, a place for myself in doing kind of like these almost overly sculpted. <laughs> I've actually been told by people that who love the work, they're like, you've gone way farther than you needed to for something like this. Um, uh, no, and no. it's, I, I, I honestly, I, you know, I do it for myself. Um, of course. Well, that's, I, I, I love, mean, that's the, that's I love the those ultimate form those of, contours. you know, yeah. your rep, it's the ultimate form of your expression is, is that you're, this is, this is what I do. Right. One thing that you said that brings me back to when I was talking to Mert Tansu, he said something so interesting when you said I was in the culinary school. You know, when they go to when you go to culinary school, they're not giving you good. I mean, you're not buying good knives. They're, they'll, <laughs> sure. they'll have like a list of all the shit you need to bring in, and it's usually it's just you know you don't know any better. You know, it's like you need to have the fish spatula and you need to have the the cups and the spoons and the and the teaspoons and the cups and then the, these are the knives you need, and then they always just tell you to get these Wustoffs. So my 
when I was in culinary school, I only knew these Wusthofs, Wusthof knives. And what Murd said to me that was something so fascinating, and I thought it was really interesting in regards to knife makers in general. He said, he says, if you, if you don't have a good base level in regards mm. to what your aspirations are in terms of a good working knife, you're going to, if you if your baseline aspiration is sh- a shitty knife, you're going to make shitty knives. And I just like, that was so true for me because I was just used to using uh, uh, this very heavy, very thick Wusthof knife. Sure. And I was just like, that's what we used. And, you know, with the, with the big bolster and then it was hard to sharpen because then that goddamn thing went all the way to the heel. And then what happens after that? And how do you get in there? And, <laughs> and, it, and it was interesting because it's totally true. Yeah. I don't know how you if you if you're not told and as you know and we you know I've talked most of these cooks and chefs they don't know any better either. So they're no. totally used to using like this stuff. So it's interesting that you were able to have such a high level of a baseline. Well, I mean, I think the high level of baseline comes from my experience working with Bob Kramer who right. is arguably one of the most famous and well-known culinary knife makers in the world um, who makes really great knives. And so I think that really lent me a lot of, uh, or really helped me a lot um, in figuring out how I wanted to design my own knives after having so much experience working and, and building his knives. Um, yeah. Well, here's what I want to, I want to just back up just a hair because beforehand, yeah. I, I think, I don't know who I told, I think I told this to uh, Sunset. I feel like you're Peter Parker. And when you started working with Bob and then David Lish and Bob Burke and all these guys, Bill Burke, I felt like they were the radioactive spider because you turn, it turned you, I mean, work, I mean, that, the propulsion of working with under these, I, I mean, I don't think arguably is even a correct word. I mean, Bob Kramer is the number one, um, you know, American knife maker. He started everything and he's the godfather OG, but yeah. it was like, he was the radioactive spider that turned you into Spider-Man. I've always <laughs> sure. felt that way. Yeah. Uh, because it's true. But here's yeah. the thing. Here's, here's, the, here's the thing about Spider-Man. It's not just, he, it's not just the, it's not just the radioactive spider that turned him into Spider-Man. Peter Parker had something in him to get to this point. Mm. And this is what I, and I just don't buy from you that this all opened up as soon as you started working for Bob. Well, I feel like, yeah, I, I feel mean, like you were creative beforehand. Yeah. When, oh God, I think the first time I realized I was artistically talented was in third grade. We were doing these, uh, we were studying Egypt. We had this like, Egypt section, and I'm, I'm sure some people listening have also, you know, you go through all these different cultures and you learn about all this different stuff and history. And so we were doing Egypt and we were in the art class and the, and the job was to, or the project was to basically take a small photo. And I'm sure you've done this before as well, Jeff, is essentially create a grid across that and blow it up. And I hmm. did that and, and it came out like, like a photocopy it was like perfect huh. and everybody was completely even the art art teacher was like what the fuck and um 
and it, what's hilarious is I don't have that piece. I never, cause we were moving like switching schools. We moved a lot. Like when I was growing up, I think I went to like seven different elementary schools. And so, wow. yeah. Um, so that got left behind, but that was kind of that aha moment where I was like, Oh, there's something there that I didn't realize was a thing. And and so it was from that point on, I kind of started kind of identifying, especially as more and more people would tell me, oh, you're so artistic, you're so artistic, you know, from kind of like that outside um, perspective, people telling you that enough, you you start to believe, kind of believe it yourself. And and so, I, you know, I've, I was always creative, though, and especially when it came to building stuff. I love playing with Lincoln Logs, if anybody even knows what the hell those are anymore. Um, but I love playing with Lincoln Logs and Legos when I was growing up and building stuff from, uh, I think it was my stepdad was a woodworker. He worked at a cabinetry shop and he would always just bring home scraps for, for us to burn in the fireplace. And I would always sneak pieces and start building stuff with hammer, with like with a hammer and nails. I couldn't cut anything. So I was just building with what I had, um, building like huh. what I would call like little, little boxes, basically that wouldn't like i would store stuff in like little stash boxes for a five-year-old where you'd hide your toy that you don't want your little brother or little sister to play with because they're gonna break it or something like that um, but that's fun that's th- those little things yeah, yeah it's those little things that you're doing by yourself where you're creating something and it's not like lego it's like you're you're creating something with these scraps and then you're you're really your your ability to have your imagination is really you're showing your imagination in a in a thing yeah yeah and so i mean from there it grew i got into woodworking uh and built like actually like what is it in middle school we started actually being able to use like woodworking tools like table saws band saws wood lathes chop saws or i guess kind of miter saws um and so yeah i i loved building things i could I, I've I've only really realized it in the last few few years, but I just I was able to kind of visualize what I wanted to make, and then look at my materials and w- which ones are going to suit that, the you know suit the 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 design. I mean, even last night, like <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous, but I was my son decided he wanted dragon wings. He's really into dragons. He loves dragons. He's been learning about dinosaurs and all this shit. We got. He's so he's like, I want to make dragon wings. When he says, I want to make it, really means I'm you're gonna make me dragon wings. The no problem, fine, it's fine. <laughs> I understand. It's it comes with the territory. So, anyways, yeah, of course. <clears throat> so, uh, I go out into the garage where we kind of, you know, we get all these Amazon orders and stuff like that, or we we get boxes from Costco, and so, or or obviously Christmas was just a couple months ago, so we actually still have some of those packages, packaging boxes, and I was kind of like looking through and still had like a rough image, and it's just kind of like in my head, I'm kind of seeing what I want to make, but I'm not really sure it's not fully formed yet, and then I find a box that I think could suit it, and I just start taking it apart into different panels and started breaking it down. And it came together like within an hour, a pair of dragon wings that look pretty fucking cool. I'd say it myself, but it's just, it's, it's the same thing with like with nowadays with my forging. And, and it was the same thing back in middle school. Like when it came to a woodworking, it's like if I saw an image, you know, I would see pictures of stuff in, in a like better home and gardens magazine or something like that, trying to figure out what I wanted to build. And 
they don't have plans on how to build that thing, but right. I could see it. I could draw out design. I could draw. I get kind of reverse engineer it and break it down and figure out all the different parts that I need and start making them. And so I think that's one thing that's really played. That's kind of like that hidden potential, I guess you're talking about that, that was always there that just needed that kickstart from Bob, especially when it came to the knife making. But the, but the, you know, the interesting thing is, is going back to that project you did the third grade where you did the grids and then you made it look like a photocopy. Yeah. There is a met, there's one thing about your work and just the watching your your uh, when you anytime you do like a little Instagram of how to do something, there's a very calm quality to the way you work, and there's a very also a very deliberate quality. And the, it's interesting when you talk about that project you did in the third grade, where it was like this kind of like eye opening experience, because you had a very it wasn't like, all right, you know, start coloring. It was a very, very deliberate project where you had to stop and then understand what you had to do. And then you were able to calmly produce. I see that with the way you work. Number one, I see your hands and your hands are very clean. Your hands are very clean. There are not a lot of cuts on them. They're very, they're, I'm envious of your hands. I'm, I'm a, I go hand first all the time. There's a deliberateness to the way you work that I see that's also, it comes out in the way your knives are. There's a very careful deliberacy that's very, I, that's part of the thing that I think that comes through um, with your work. And I'm, and I wonder about like when you're younger and you're working on this stuff, you're not just making sculpture and just, you know, whacking out some clay and then making some, a thing, a thing you're, you're very deliberate in your methodology. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, kind of seeing the thing or kind of visualizing visualizing what I want to do and then taking a step back instead of running towards it and the materials and the tools, I take a step back and kind of draw out a plan. Um, and I didn't always do that, especially when I was younger. I do nowadays for sure. Um, just because time is no money. Choice. Yeah. Time is money and I can't afford to but waste it going in a direction that's not going to really work. Right. But, um, but yeah, it's, it is kind of that kind of taking a step back. And that's, I, I had to tell my my son, he just wanted those dragon wings. Like he wanted them right now. He's like, right. I daddy, I have a hard time with waiting. <laughs> and you know it, what? It, we're only like 10 minutes in, <laughs> but I was like, listen, we, we just gotta, we, we gotta think about it. And, uh, and we, we had to stop and pause a couple of times. Cause I, I got to a point where I didn't know what I was doing or where I was trying to go. So I had to stop. Um, and kind of go do something else. I think we were making dinner at the same time and, uh, and came back to it with, with a kind of more of a, a well-rounded concept and idea or more well-defined, I guess, to execute that plan of those. But that's so great that <laughs> dragon he was, that was so great that he was able to, um, he was able to express how he felt. Oh, yeah, I think for sure. that's something that kid, kids being able to express, even though whether or not be a good thing or a bad thing, Dad, I, I'm having a hard time waiting. That's a very, very good sign. That's a very, very good sign. You want your kid to be able to express themselves, whether they're happy or not. I think that's really great. For sure. Yeah, so it's, it's good. When you were, in, you were in high school, I know you did a lot of athletics. Yes, I did. Did you enjoy it? Um, For me... I really struggled, especially through in middle school and high school. I really struggled with um, feeling like I belonged. 
as I'm sure many people do. Um, and so I, the biggest reason I did sports was to fit in and to kind of, kind of feel or, or, or kind of, I don't know that trope of, you know, the cool kids play sports, uh, or they play, like I even got, I, I started playing guitar when I was in high school. You know, I was trying to, you know, trying to fit in and feel like people feel accepted. And honestly, a lot of it was doing things that I thought other people wanted me to do instead of me just being me. And I think Hmm. honestly, if I, I probably still would have done sports. I just would have, there wouldn't have been so much baggage around it it would have just been more fun i guess more than anything i guess um 100 right the same with uh you know same with playing music and playing guitar and stuff like that i grew up with my grandfather playing guitar so that i had always been around that my whole life um and it was just kind of you know even in that time in high especially in high school you know I, I'd never dated a girl. I'd never had a girlfriend. Honestly, I never had a girlfriend until after I got out of high school anyways. Uh, huh. So and it's what good it did for me anyway. Anyways, um, but, you know what's funny? Yeah. What's funny about that is, see, I went to an all-boys school. Sure. So I felt my whole, I mean, 12 years. 12, I mean, 12, oh, yeah, wow. 12 years. Sure. So I felt like the pressure was always on. And I was fucking girl crazy. <laughs> because it, because the time I was around girls was so small yeah, that sure. like that's the reason why I went into acting because it was mm. the only opportunity for us to be around girls at the girls school. Yeah. So sure. the only my my reasoning behind you know doing any school plays was just to be around other girl to be around girls. I was yeah. girl crazy. Yeah. So when I hear guys like you and, and, and other people talk about like, you, you know, we went to a, you know, co-ed school. I'm just like, Oh my God, if I had gone to a co-ed school, I wouldn't have been able to do anything. (laughs) I'm I'm serious. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny, a a real funny story is. So the first school I went to was an all boys school that ended in ninth grade. And then you had to find a secondary school to go from 10th to 12th. And I went to visit some schools. I'm now in ninth grade. So, like, what's that? Okay. Ninth grade is, I don't know how old that is, like 14 or something like that? I was 13 in ninth grade. Most people are 14. Yeah, sorry. Well, it was, oh, we're going to get, oh, very good. So, one thing is, is, like, I just remember going to one co-ed school, and there were girls, and I was going out of my fucking mind just sitting in the class. I wasn't even, <laughs> it was, I was just visiting the school. And I was just like, all I could think of is, I'm a, I'm um I'm never gonna get any work done. I'm never I'm I was terrified at my thoughts and that I was just gonna be so girl crazy, I was just gonna flunk out. So I ended up choosing to go to another boys' school because I felt like I needed the discipline to get me through. I was at girl 14, crazy. You were thinking about how you Dude, needed the discipline? I ne- I was afraid that it was too liberal. It would you were they were too um, I thought that going to an all-boys school, you wear a shirt and tie all the time. It gave me a degree of discipline that I felt I needed. My father was also very strict. He was uh, actually, my father, when I was born, he was 50. So he actually was almost, oh could have been my grandfather. Yeah. So he came from, you know, he was a World War II vet, and he came from a different generation. It was very strict. Everything was like ship up, ship. He used to say to me, shape up or ship out. And he would use these military terms and everything was like very discipline oriented. Mm, and when yeah. I got this taste of freedom, 
being in an all, you know, being a co-ed school with these girls are, they're all going through puberty. They're all like, I mean, I'm just like all, I haven't been around girls at all. I'm just like losing my fucking mind, just sitting in the chair, just sitting in the chair, uh, watching the class and deciding if I'm going to go to the school. I, at the end of the day, I was just like, I can't do, I'm never going to, they're going to throw me out of here. They're going to throw me out of here. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm just going to be girl crazy. Right. I mean, you would have gotten so over just, it, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I'll be honest with you, I ended up, you know, going, going to college. It was girl crazy. I mean, it was like, I mean, I, I ended up having a serious relationship in orientation, orientation of freshman year. I, I didn't even just wait. I got into a serious relationship the first week I was there, and it turned into a two-year relationship. Yeah, wow. Well, but and that's that question. To, like, does it make sense to do that shit sooner than later? Because then maybe by the time you hit college, you would have gotten some of that out of you and you could have been, I mean, not that I'm saying that you were not focused or, or distracted by it, but it, it would have been a different story if you had done all that kind of stuff in your early teens, 12, 13, 14 years old, you know? I was very, I was very unsure of myself and like a lot of makers, I was very insecure I was raised by a father who used to say to me all the time, um, you don't know what you're talking about. I was mm. insecure in regards to what I was supposed to be doing. And I was afraid of my, I mean, the expectation in regards to my academics was very high. So I was very, any kind of distraction, oh, wow. I was sure. afraid. I was afraid. Yeah. And I didn't, and I, it's not like I was like a, you know, I wasn't inappropriate with girls. I just felt anytime I sure. was around them, I felt... I felt like time is wasting. Like when we go to the sixth grade dances, I would try to dance with as many girls as I could to get comfortable just <laughs> being around girls. Oh, wow. It was crazy. That it was very, crazy. Yeah, that was I'm a very enlightened perspective. To me, I was, I, I was, was the complete opposite end of the spectrum. I was terrified. But you were around them. But you were around <laughs> them the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, maybe I, 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 I did it the wrong way. <laughs> no, you didn't. It's just the way it is. But it's like just getting back to getting back to you in the, in regards to that. When you got when you finished high school, what was what were you, did you have a plan? Did you know what you wanted to do? Well, like you mentioned, I I did ath athletics and I was very I was pretty damn good at uh sports. Um I played football and I don't I don't think I really would have taken that anywhere, but I also did um track and field and I was I was a uh a weightman, as they would call it, but somebody that threw weight around, so shot put discus. I didn't do hammer. I dabbled in hammer at a track summer camp, um, but I could have walked on at a college, like in here in eastern Washington, um, probably walked on and became a collegiate athlete, throwing huh. the hammer and doing sh shit like that. But um, money growing up for us was pretty tight, and I, and I was the first kid of three. And my brother, what's my brother? My brother is... Are you the oldest? I'm the oldest of three. My brother is 14 months younger than me, and my sister's 13 months younger than him. So we're almost Irish triplets. Holy and, cow. Yeah. And and uh, and my mom was newly single, and um, she, her, her and my stepdad got divorced, uh, I guess, the summer before my sophomore year. And so I graduated only a couple of years later. And, and money was an issue. And I, so, okay. So it was, we didn't know anything about 
scholarships. We didn't know anything about right. like Pell grants, any kind of grants to go to school and how all those work and what uh, application right. deadlines and all any of that shit, how any of that shit worked. And so we just, I just didn't go. Um, right. So I stayed around in town. I went to local community college um, and started working on stuff towards my AA while still working and, and helping um, to kind of help your AA support. mean your associates? Yes, sorry, not my Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, my associates <laughs> are. Just keep it clear, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. But um, what were you looking? What were you thinking about getting your associates in? Uh, honestly, actually, if I had, if I were to go back to school right now, I'd probably go back to school for psycho, like, uh, yeah, like psychology, um, <laughs> to become like a like counselor, try to help people. Um, that was the, out of everything, (laughs) it's crazy. My senior year, the only, I took art classes. I took, uh, I wasn't taking anything crazy, like no crazy math, no crazy sciences or anything like that. The one class I got an A in was psychology and it was just so intriguing to me to try to like, to try to understand people and to try to understand myself, I guess, at the same time. And yeah. so if I had gone back, or I guess I did go to school, I was starting to, towards that stuff, but I was so terrible at school. I barely, actually, I barely graduated high school. Um, my G, I think the, the GPA threshold was like 2.2 or 2.3, and I graduated with a 2.4. And if I didn't break that, I probably would have been, <laughs> I would have been held back. And it wasn't because I was dumb. I was, I was terrible at doing schoolwork. I, unlike yourself, was not very disciplined, and I hated. I loved learning, but I hated doing the bullshit schoolwork. But that was part of it, right? And and that unfortunately only carried on in the college. Um, but even before you got into community college, you have to do kind of a placement testing to see, you know, what math do you start out? What English level do you start at? My reading comprehension was so low th- that I was supposed to take English as a second language courses before (laughs) as if English was not my native language and it's just I was such a horrible reader and it wasn't really until after high school that I I started learning how to read like not learning how to read but reading for pleasure and getting into reading because up to that point I had always struggled and I've never been diagnosed as dyslexic but I guarantee I am dyslexic um and which is not unheard of for creative or maker types like us and yeah I'm dyslexic yeah. And, oh, P.S. In regards to my discipline, I was a shitty student. <laughs> I was okay. a shitty student. Good. I was a C-plus student. I was a C-plus student. Oh, yeah, but I was a solid C-minus, like, almost D. <laughs> it was like it was like the pressure. But when I got to high school, I t- had to turn it on. Like sure. I had to work extra hard just because I was dyslexic too, and also I had dyscalculus, which is dyslexia for math, if you can believe that. And I had to figure out I ways in which it. to work. I've but never the, heard of it, but that's I believe that's a thing. Yeah, for sure. It was you know it, most creative people, most people who like to do things with their hands and they're visual thinkers, they all have some you know learning disability whatsoever. But no. it was it was not easy for me to get into college, and I really like work like a dog, and it was a lot of like. You know, there was a lot of expectation, but sure. in regards to you, I see, I, I, I it's interesting because I just assume that you were like a big math guy, like, I, because I you have an understanding, you were, <laughs> I was you not have an understanding. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. You have an understanding of math from like a very deep level. 
like your proportions, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of like, you know, the golden proportions and, you know, there's that golden proportion that makes something look just perfect. And I mm. feel like you have like this innate, you know, just understanding of it. Oh, yeah. I don't know where that comes from. And honestly, like I, when it came to mathematics, especially in high school, uh, if you just gave me the formula and I could and I knew what numbers to plug in. Like I could do the math all day. That was super easy. Um, and geom- well, let's see, geometry was hard for me. And on a, and uh, what was it? And then and then college algebra. Actually, after after so after I graduated, I did start doing like col- college level algebra, which is hilarious. I qualified for college level algebra, um, but English is a second language. <laughs> Anyways, That's crazy. <laughs> English is a second language is such an insult to you. It's such an insult. You know, well, I mean, come on, I mean, guys. <laughs> fucking A. Well, and the way the test works is basically you read a paragraph or two or whatever, a page, and then they ask you a bunch of questions. And when it came to, so that was kind of like the comprehension. I was terrible, like under pressure reading, reading anything, like even in high school, reading uh, like class or not projects, but classroom assignments where the teacher would hand out a packet of reading and you had to answer a bunch of questions at the end of it. I I never got points for any of those ever because I just could not do them. I would never get those done. I would would spend the whole damn period, 56 minutes or whatever the hell it was, reading the same paragraph 27 times because... I was so I was struggling with reading just what the hell was on the page and so focused that by the time I got to the end I didn't know what the hell I had just read and I had to start over. And I have to that start over. That feeling of it being like a over. blank. Ugh. You 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 look at it and it's like I know that feeling of like you've just read this page. Yeah. And it's like what happened? What happened in that time when I started at the top <laughs> and now I'm at the bottom? Cuz it's blank now. And like in yeah. my mind, I got none of it. I got not not a fucking thing. Yeah. Well, and I, I think uh, one was my own issues uh, with reading, but also just the distractions in class. Right. And when everybody else is blasting through pages and I'm still on the first fucking page, Ugh. it was it was terrible. It sucked. I hated it. Um, and I didn't know that I could just kind of like talk to my teachers. I didn't know any of that stuff. Again, I was the first right. and we didn't we didn't really yeah, we didn't know that stuff. Yeah, and your family's got other things to worry about with her oh, yeah. regards to you gonna talk to the teacher. For right? sure. Yeah, and so, honestly, my mom, as long as I wasn't failing and I wasn't unhappy, or I guess like unhappy in the way that I don't know. I guess as long as I wasn't failing, my mom was cool with whatever I was getting. Um huh. and so there wasn't a lot of pressure from that end. So, yeah. So, talking you're, about you're high finishing school off high school. <laughs> you're finishing off high school. What did you think? What did you think you wanted to do? I mean, I thought, what the hell did I want, want to do? Uh, I was working a construction job, doing like infin- in interior f- finished carpentry work for a friend's dad's company, like general contracting company. Um. And, but I didn't, I didn't really want to do that. I actually, I, it was either like the psychology route or I wanted to get into furniture building, um, hmm. or instrument building. And again, it goes back to kind of like the woodworking and, and detail oriented woodworking craftsmanship kind of stuff. 
but I, I didn't know anything about finding the right people or, or there was a friend I went to high or let's see, I went to middle school and part of high school with a kid whose dad was a, a luthier. He built violins. Um, and he ended up moving his shop up to Tacoma, which is about 45 minutes from here, from where I was living at the time. So that wasn't wasn't a very good option for me. And so I ended up just working whatever kind of basically shitty job I could. I worked in movie theaters. I worked at construction stuff. I worked as a retail clerk at like Lowe's. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think until I was about 25 years old, I had had probably close to 25 different jobs. Wow. Um, again, going back to my discipline, it's just, I, I think it took a long time before I got to a point where I, I could kind of compartmentalize things. I just, I just would work a job and then I was like, this job fucking sucks. And I just quit. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, that's a good reason to quit. Yeah. That's a good I mean, I mean that is if I mean that is the number one reason to quit a job. This yeah. sucks. I can yeah. do better than this. Sure. So you must have thought to yourself, I can do better than this, and then absolutely get on to the next one. Yep. How did you get involved with salsa dancing? <laughs> you were like a salsa dancing teacher. I I was. I, uh, <laughs> I, I gotta step back. What was I doing? I was working in restaurants and actually it was, my mom had started taking community classes and, um, uh, I would go pick her up sometimes cause, uh, you know, we just kind of had one car between us and, and so I would go pick her up and sometimes I'd show up early and I was, I would watch him and I'm like, I could do that shit. <laughs> but I never took the class. And then uh, it was, I had taken a break off from going to community college. I was kind of ready to go back. Like I would go for a, um, a quarter or two. And then I would take like a year off and go back for another quarter or two and take a year off. And so this is probably like my third round of that. And I was getting ready to sign up for classes again. And I saw that they were offering salsa as like a PE class for one credit. For $75, at $75 a credit, you could take P, a PE salsa dancing class for whatever, three months. And I, can, I just basically was price shopping. And to take four lessons at the community class was 80 bucks. And I was like, well, that's easy. I'll take, I'll take the, the community class and so, or the community college class. And so I took that and I picked it up really quick. And I wasn't just full of myself. I actually could do it. And I'll tell you what, if you are a guy, especially a younger guy or even an older guy, you're single, you're looking to meet people, um, dancing is the way. Holy smokes. And it was, it was a, the class was a trip, actually. It kind of like created, helped develop like a sense of confidence I didn't really have before. I think I was in my. I was my, about to say that. Yeah, I was in my early 20, like 22, 23 when I took this class. Maybe 21, I don't remember. Anyways, um, but it's a very, like in most classes you take in community college or college or it, anywhere in general, you're sitting at a desk, everybody's looking in the same direction as the teacher. In a salsa dancing class, you're face-to-face, hand-in-hand, dancing very close with a lot of, <laughs> lot of women. And, and it was... I think there were like four guys in the class and like 16 girls. So it was a total win for a guy looking for a girl, right? 
And I didn't end up dating anybody in the class, but every, all the girls in the class loved me. <laughs> it was but because I was good. It was fun to dance with me. I had I had developed like this sense of self-confidence through being confident in my ability to dance and and doing it with these a lot of you know a lot of girls in the class were very pretty and and so I was like I can do this. It was awesome. That is that confidence that you said it gives you confidence that the being able to perform especially mm. in front of other people yeah. And it's very intimate. And you don't want to look like you're a dork. And to have the confidence to be able to do it in front of, you know, beautiful women or whatever, and they're looking at you and maybe, I don't know, who knows? You, I, in my, If I was doing it, I'd be like, oh, my God, do I have sweaty pits? Are my, are my, hands, <laughs> are my hands sweaty? I'll tell you a funny story. I, when I was in summer camp, they forced us to do square dancing. And I was so goddamn nervous. Mm, and sure. I was square dancing with this girl. And, you know, they, they move you around and everything like that. And we were holding hands, and this woman said, this girl says, are your hands sweaty? I was mortified. <laughs> I was mortified. But, I mean, it's for you, sure. not having that confidence in high school with girls and to be able to all of a sudden, this, this, this salsa dancing is very important because it gives you a degree of confidence that you can, that you can do these things. Yeah. I can interact with pretty girls, but also just, like, it went beyond that. Just, like, confidence in general. Just yeah. in being yeah. myself, um, and what was cool about the community that, especially that community course, like I did uh, up to that point, I had always tried to take classes with people I'd known, but you kind of box yourself in, like you stay in a box in a way by doing that. And I took this course with without knowing anybody else that was going to be taking it, and so in that frame i mean it's almost kind of like summer camp where you can kind of reinvent yourself right you can right you can discover new things about yourself or let things out about yourself that you know most people who you go to school with or know in day-to-day life don't know about you or you're afraid to share because of whatever judgment they might bring upon right. you in a in a setting where nobody knows you you're free to be whoever the fuck you want and and every time I've had those kind of experiences in a kind of either in that course or even in a camp type setting, I I was able to become more and more myself, um, and and more and more confident in myself, and less, I guess, less what I thought, or less concerned with what I thought other people thought I needed to be, or, or what I thought other people needed needed me to be. And um, isn't that amazing? It's, Isn't it amazing something I mean, like salsa dancing could, is almost transformative to you? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, and so I took the class. I killed it. Everybody loved me. The teacher loved me. She off. She asked me to be her dancing partner uh, and help her teach community classes and private lessons. And so we started teaching classes and lessons together. Um, and we did that for a couple of years. And 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 I don't really dance anymore. I. I you know, at home we have like little dance parties. We'll turn on Pandora or something right. like that. We'll dance around the house, but other than that, like I don't really do it anymore. But it, it really did have a huge impact on my own personal development as a person. I bet. Yeah, in a huge way, for sure. Now, yeah. am I crazy? But it was it one of your dance partners that introduced you to Bob Kramer. That was my instructor, actually. Yeah, my dance partner slash instructor, my original instructor. She started. Working for Bob, um, 
doing kind of like his paperwork and and kind of and kind of like administrative like office work kind of kind of how like tony is for you in a way right um to kind of help get things organized she, she you know outside of this salsa dancing instructing instruction work she also had many different hats that she wore and part of that was some of this is administrative work that she did and so she started working for him we were still dancing together I was working at a local brew pub called the Fishtail Brew Pub. I was working in the kitchen, prepping, cooking on the line at night. Um, I did some of the in-house, like non non-alcoholic beverage, like brews. Like a, we did this like ginger soda thing, it was super tasty. Did you hear that? I just heard a weird beep thing. Maybe it's just me. Uh, no. No. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Uh, so I was dancing with her and I was, shit, what was I? I was 24 going, I was 23 going on 24 and I didn't know what the hell I was doing with myself at that point in my life. I had actually been in AmeriCorps, uh, which is like, it's, it's not volunteer work like Peace Corps. It's, it's a, it's a nonprofit organization that, uh, basically gives kids like between the ages of 18 to I think 24 actually is the max age an opportunity to basically get paid get quote-unquote paid in the way that they get like a student loan debt relief and stuff like that by by doing work for nonprofits around the country in the United States and I actually got kicked (laughs) I got kicked out of that and uh, that's a whole nother story uh, well, I mean, we're I'm here. Talking, I'm talking about <laughs> how I okay, met Bob Okay, okay, all right. We'll swing back. I know what I'm doing. I know and what I'm so, doing. So I, uh, I, I was in a place though. I was 24. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing with myself in my life. I, didn't, I had no direction. I had friends that were living north, uh, north of Seattle, a couple hours in a college town called Bellingham, and it's a really beautiful town. Just, uh, it's about half an hour short of the Canadian border to Vancouver. Um, and I was about to split town and move up there and kind of start over again and start, you know, working in a different restaurant and just kind of hanging out. And, and, um, and she said, you know, you should meet this guy I started working with. Um, he, he's a bladesmith. And I gave her like this weird side look cause I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. Right. And I didn't know that people still smith knives i and i had had a vague recollection of like watching tombstone or something like that you know <laughs> with the blacksmith yeah. or something but yeah. other than that yeah <laughs> nothing and so get uh, out of here i'm talking what are you talking about you i, talking I don't about? know exactly what you're saying yeah so i so she's like you know he's been all over he's uh he's a really interesting guy he was even a clown at one point and so i was like all right well i mean he sounds interesting I'm always up to meet somebody new, so right. I said, "Yeah, let's do it." And so we we were scheduled to have basically a BS session session over some beers and and some food at the restaurant I was working at. And after about an hour, hour and a half of chatting and talking, he offered me an opportunity to work in a shop, and I was about like, you know, I've. I've said this before in other interviews, but basically, you know, after hearing, after or after talking for an hour and he offered me an opportunity and I was ready to skip town anyways, I figured, why the fuck not try it? I got nothing to lose because if I, if it doesn't work, then I'll skip town like I was planning to anyways. And, um, and it told and turned into a whole life changing, you know, career. 
I, you know what's interesting? I can't get, I can't, I still can't get past the kindness and the thoughtfulness of your dance partner because your dance mm. partner had, you had an intimate, and when I say intimate, I mean like you guys were dancing together and you were teaching yeah. together and talking together yeah, and having we laughs really together. Friends. Yeah. You became a, friends. Yeah. And she understood most likely you. I mean, you were dancing with her for a while. So, I mean, I yeah. would imagine that you end up, you know, she gets you. And then for her to have the, the inner fortitude to say, you know what, maybe he'd be good with, with Bob. Right. I think that that's very thoughtful of her. Absolutely. Very thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah, and we'd concern- been dancing and- together for like three years at that point. So, yeah, she definitely had a good handle on who I was. And, you know, we spent hours a day especially when we first started teaching, basically teaching me everything she learned in like 15 years. She taught me in about two months and, and we just went from there. And so do you think she was worried about you? I'm I'm sure she was. I mean, we were like, you know, like I said, we were, we were dancing together for three years. We were really close friends and we were never romantic or anything. She just, you know, she just, she just cared. And yeah, I, I really, uh, I really appreciate her opening that door I mean, for it's me. Incre- I mean, it is, it if you think about life. it, I mean, especially sure. considering what, what you've been through and wh- yeah. where you are today, I mean, she's really, I mean, she's really, the, she, I mean, it's almost like she brokered the deal. She's the right. one who made the connection. Yeah. She, she gave you a new dance partner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. I, those little things are the things to me that are the most interesting because it's like, you know, when you look back at a person's history, there are these moments and then sometimes you just don't put piece in together in regards to the, you know, whatever. It could be like a, you know, I try to think, sometimes I think very romantically in like a literary sense of how your life, you know, these forks that turn in oh, your yeah. life. And I just, the fact that you were, and the fact that you were at a position where you, you were on the way out. I mean, if the timing wasn't a thousand percent right, I mean, obviously she knew you were going to leave because yeah. she, you knew, she knew you were going to leave and she knew you were unhappy. She knew you were going to leave to go up co- towards Canada. So she's just like, well, let me see if maybe this is the last, this is the last <laughs> chance. It's like, sure. It is, it is, it could have not happened. Oh, absolutely. And you're you're 100% right. I mean, I do, I, I very consciously sometimes think about what has conspired to get me to where I'm at and how, and remembering those different moments, those turning points where you, you, like you said, the forks in the road, where if I had, like, you definitely have options. And if you'd chosen, if I had not chosen to meet Bob or if I had not chosen to sign up for that class with the community college and just did the community course, like so many things, right? It's it's just a, it's a trip to go back and think about. It kind of like What's her that first lineage. name? Chris. Chris, I salute you. Uh, among other knife makers in the world, you've done a real service. <laughs> Chris, you've done a real. So it's true. Sure. Yeah, it's true. I, I mean, so, it's like, huh? I mean, it is amazing. It is. It is amazing because it's like it could have just been. I mean, that was like it's almost like a flash in the pan, and right. then you started working for Bob, and then you know you get involved with him. And when is when you started working for Bob? When did you start to think I can do this? Because I know for a fact, because I know what it's like to have people in your shop. The first probably first few weeks were miserable. You weren't doing anything good other than like what you were making mosaic pins or something. 
Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. So when I first started working in Bob's shop, um, and he prefaced it after he offered me the job, he's like, look, you know, I can't promise I got any full-time work for you. Right. And um, I was like, yep, that's understandable. Um, and so um, I think ultimately he was trying to feel me out. But this, uh, let's see, he hired, or this all happened in the the beginning of November. And, or maybe it was October, actually. It was the beginning of October. And then he, uh, and then the article in the New Yorker, the big article that like really blew him up and put him on the map, um, came out in November, kind of around Thanksgiving time, um, which is a big, like seven or eight page spread about him and his path and how he, what he was doing and all this stuff. And so, uh, I think he had experienced little bursts of interest in his work from other smaller things but he knew that this was going to be big and so he was kind of looking for somebody to come work in his shop anyways and so what better than to hire somebody um who was referred to you by somebody else you trust and so that's that's what he did with me and but again he he didn't make any promises um and i did start out sweeping the floors and reorganizing like little nut and bolt racks like he had right. this one rolling rack it had probably 60 boxes hanging on the fucking thing and every box seemed to have a little bit of something else in it <laughs> and so right oh yeah and, yeah. and it That's was full do. of dust and right. so it was not only cleaning and organizing everything or you know organizing everything but it's clean out all the dust and white oh, it's terrible labeling everything doing all that shit and i did that for you know the first two three months that i was there um and quick question two questions sure one is what was the time frame between that night you guys had beer to when you first started when that article came out in in at thanksgiving time yeah so uh when he offered me a thing i told him i need to give my current job two weeks heads up uh and then two weeks later i started working for him and then that article in the new yorker came out i think maybe only two or yeah two or three weeks later that's crazy yeah that's fucking crazy dude the timing of it all (laughs) the timing of it all is such a fucking razor's edge yeah you know and the fact is obviously he did he had done the he had i would imagine that he had already done the article uh, a few weeks or a week or so before he oh, met yeah. with you. And then I was like, the timing was right. I needed a guy. And all of a sudden, you know, Chris has got this dude. I just, I love these stories with timing because it's like just one misstep, you know, you would end up in Canada doing who the hell knows what. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cooking in some little brew pub somewhere up in Canada or up in Bellingham. Yeah. So man, what a fucking thing. That is yeah. fucking amazing. Because it's like, it, it, destiny is one of those things that, you know, I don't like to think about destiny. But then you think about these little things that could have happened or didn't happen. Sure. You know, I was talking to Pat Quinn um, a couple episodes ago. Mm. He and I both know this blacksmith in New York episode. City. Yeah, it's good. He, he, Tom Ryan is one of the great blacksmiths. He has, he was the, he, there's a place called Koning Ironworks sure. in Long Island City, which is literally across the street it's not Long Island City. It's it's north of the, the 59th Street Bridge. It's right across from Roosevelt Island. 
So it's a metal, it's a union metal shop, but they happen to have this giant blacksmith shop attached to it. So okay. like they were doing like uh, you know erection stuff from buildings and stuff. I met him. If I had the choice to say, he offered this dude. I knew him because I knew some sculptor, goofy sculptors. He was a blacksmith. They were he had all these guys from Long Island City. He wanted he he knew me because he knew the guys I worked for. He offered me a job and I turned it down. Mm-hmm. He offered me a job. Right. And I always think what would have happened if I had taken that job. You know, there are other you know, there are other things in your life that you think, you know, would have changed. I mean, I I almost, you know, there was very close to joining the Marines instead of going to college. And, and if I and I think of what happened if I had done that, and I in my yeah. mind I think, well, I wouldn't have met my wife and then I wouldn't have had their kid. Mm-hmm. But at mm-hmm. this point, Tom Ryan, I was about to get married, so Hillary and I were already locked in. If I had gone to work for this blacksmith in Long Island City when I was 26, 25, I wonder how my life would have changed. I wonder. Yeah, sure. And for you for you to have taken that plunge with no, with no, uh, you know, it wasn't, I mean, it was an easy decision. You were just like, well, I can, if it doesn't work out, I'm just going to leave like I was supposed right. to. So, you know. Yeah. I, I love that stuff. I just split like all the other jobs I <laughs> left behind before. Yeah, the yeah, yeah sure. you're used to it. Give it yeah. a whirl, see what happens. You're you're look you're actually you're looking for when you do that, you're looking for a degree of hope. Yeah, you're hoping for a better opportunity. And now you're working with Bob Kramer. Right. At what well, point I didn't when know you who he was. Uh, that better he, you, that's me, better. He was just some guy who made not I didn't know that he was a big a big deal or anything. That's I'm sure he appreciated <laughs> fact, that. When his article came out, I didn't even read it until like a year later. Like I'm I sure, <laughs> deep down no he, at the time, he probably appreciated it. It's the same thing with like, you know, when these cooks show up in these restaurants, they have so much baggage, and when they think about the guy mm. they're working for, there's so much nervousness and baggage. You have to retrain him and everything. I'm sure Bob thought this is perfect. This is a, this is a, this is clay. This is a unmolded clay. I don't right. have to redo anything. I can I can start for him from scratch. I was a capable what, clean slate. <laughs> clean slate that's the fucking best and the fact that you didn't know who he was yeah. i'm sure it made it even easier for him true because then you're not asking these dumb questions like well what was it like when you went to you know you didn't think you'd do anything <laughs> sure. you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah do you know 100%. do you know uh you know this guy you know that you don't need that in your life right so at what point when you were in that shop did you think i think i could probably make a knife or i want to make a knife um I think, what was it? It was probably about, you know, I probably was drawing stuff about six months in, but for some reason, I had it in my head, like the first drawings I did of knives were folding knives. Hmm. Um, and I had interest, and I think part of the reason is because I didn't want to like step on toes probably. Right. Um, because even though, you know, Bob only did fixed blade chef's knives, um, you know, he didn't do any hunters or anything, really. Um, I could have gone that route, but for I just tried to step completely outside of his box to folding knives, um, which I still have never made a folding knife. Um, but I have a few different like templates and shit laying around. <laughs> and honestly, right. like I don't. If anymore, it's just my own personal interest. I have no interest in making folding knives to sell because there's just so many damn talented folding knife makers at a level that I'll never be at that I think it is worthwhile. <laughs> that but, but here's the no question point. based on what you just said. Yeah. 
Yeah. But if you wanted to make it for yourself, then that's different than I'm not going to make it because other people make it better. Right. If you True. want to make it for yourself, that's a different story. Sure. Yeah. You shouldn't and I think... be because you're afraid that it's not going to be as good as someone else does. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought I was going to, maybe I thought I was going to start making folding knives or something like that, but obviously that never came together. Uh, the first real knife I made was for my brother. Uh, it was a graduate, he was graduating from um, his basic training, and I made him a little kind of fixed blade, kind of tactical survival knife situation from a piece of Damascus that at that point I had started making the Damascus for Bob. Um, and, and so I, it was just kind of a scrap because what we do is we'd for, forge out, forge out a bar basically, and then stock remove it from there. And so there was plenty of kind of scrap pieces that weren't big enough for anything else. And, and so he, uh, he let me make a little, a little knife for my brother and, and it, Turned out pretty good. It's a nice, it was a beautiful piece of koa um, that went on there and it was a nice knife. But that was probably the Did first real knife. And that was only, I think that was about, that was more than two years into my knife making with Bob. Huh. Probably like two years and a, four months or something was the first so time I made So at this point, a, a you knife. think to yourself, all right, this is not working at the movie theater. This is a job that I'm going to hold on to. Did you think you were going to be there for a while or um, did you think this is, maybe I, this is my path? You know, I did. I still didn't. You know, up to that point, I had worked so many jobs, and everything's been so temporary. I think the longest job I had held at that point was maybe nine months or something like that. So being with Bob for two years is like that was a I big mean, deal. You're into like extra innings, but yeah, and exactly. And so I was like, for me, part of me was kind of like, oh, this is gonna end any time. I don't know, like. For some reason, <laughs> like almost kind of like this self-sabotaging brain started setting in, um, which I think actually ultimately came true. But um, yeah, I, I, I didn't know. I didn't. I, I'd, up to that point in my life, I'd been good at a lot of things, and it never, it never felt like it was my thing. And hmm. so I felt like I was just doing somebody else's thing honestly, huh. when I was working for him. And it, it, it was only in the last year. I, so I worked for Bob for three years. It was in the last year when I was doing the Damascus patterning, and especially in the, probably the last six months of working for him, that I was kind of starting to experience, like he felt very confident in my ability to weld steel and, and, and do things that wasn't going to cost him money um, and, or, or just like either hurt the, the, the machines or cost them out they asked for materials you know just wasted material and experimentation and, and learning and and so i was able to start experimenting and some of the last knives we sold while i was still working there um you know it was it was at, up until i think about two or three years ago it was like the biggest auction he he had which was a a, a little chef's it was a eight inch, i think it was an eight inch chef's knife and a four inch paring knife set they sold for fifty one thousand two hundred dollars while i was working for him Jesus. and i mean but i mean it was his design but it was all my work except for the, the kind of the heat treat and the finish grinding that must um, have been a huge amount of trust that he had in you to be yeah. able to 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 make damascus for him because as you know, sure. You know you can spend all that time on it, and then all of a sudden, once you put it in the acid, all you see is you see some sort of problem, right? 
That's exactly. an incredible amount of trust. That is, I mean, honestly, to think about it, it makes me sick to my stomach if to think that I might be able to pass some pass off that amount of trust to somebody else oh, right there's now. No there's way. no, there's no fucking way. There's no way <laughs> that I'm going to trust what you're doing enough to put my name on it and sell it with 100% confidence. Yeah. I would got to give him a lot of credit for just the trust. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I had a kid when I had Carl here. Yeah. God Carl bless Crouch. him. God bless him. I mean, there's certain things I was just like, there's just no way I'm going to let you do it. Yeah, sure. Then I, went, I was afraid to have him grind anything because I was afraid. He's, he said to me, he's such a good kid. He's he's out, yeah. he's out on his own. I don't know what the hell he's doing. He stops in every so often. Now with COVID, I don't let him come in. Carl yeah. Childs was here for a while. He was like, he was awesome. He hand-sanded beautifully. He actually enjoyed hand-sanding. Like he, like he was a big Zen guy, so he enjoyed the Zen <laughs> of it. So I was like, all right, here you go. Here's some knives to hand-sand. I'll never forget. I was teaching. I was like, all right, you know, in terms of trust, you step the person up, you step the person up. And we got to the grinder and he's looking at the grinder. I'm talking about the grinder and everything like that. And I'm talking, I had a 36 grit belt on and I was talking about how dangerous it is. And and he takes his finger and the the machine is off and he takes the finger. He says, I have a question. And then he says, if you turn this on and I touch it with my finger, what will happen? And I said, I'll tell you what will happen. You're not going to be using this grinder anymore. This is it. <laughs> that was it. That was yeah. it. Carl, Carl got, I was like, no, 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 we're going back to hand sanding. I, I can't, you can't be asking me questions like that. Seriously. I was just like, yeah. how can you ask a question like that to me? That means you're going to do it. You're going to put your yeah. finger on the grinder. And then I'm like, I can't do that. You're back to hand sanding, Junior. I couldn't trust him to fucking make, <laughs> you know, turn a forge on. I'll tell you another funny Carl story. Sure. So one of the things I had when I had my guys here, I used to say to them, like, you, you, you put in the work and then we'll make a knife. So we were forging these little knives, like little Karadashi kind of stuff, things like that. We were heat treating it, and I had the big bucket of oil. And I said, now here's what we're going to do. You're going to take the steel out, and then you're going to immediately plunge it into the oil. And then you're going to agitate it up and down. Don't take it out of the oil until okay. I tell you to count. You got to count to like whatever I yeah. said, because what will happen is if it's too hot and you pull it out, all the, the smoke will ignite or the whatever it's going to ignite and you get the fire. I said, so what are you going to do? He's like, okay, I'm going to take it out. I'm going to put it in. I'm going to keep it in. I said, and you're not going to let it out until I tell you, right? And he's like, yeah, takes it out of this forge into the oil, immediately pulls it out of the oil. Oh, and boy. this, fireball inflames his arm oh and then God. he starts running backwards oh, shit. with yeah. the fire from the now the oil is like on the tongs and the fire is yeah. running up the tongs yep. I grab his arm I grab the tongs and I put it I take the thing in and I, and I turn him I'm like do you remember that time I just told you to just keep it in the oil I mean it was <laughs> such a small piece it's like, not going to warp anyway <laughs> I'm like, remember that time? Remember oh that time God. I told you not to pull it out like that? Remember that time remember that? 10 was like seconds ago? ago. <laughs> yeah, it was literally oh like, that. I, was just like <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And I'm looking, looking at his hand. I'm looking to see if he's like, you know, he's, you know, burned a cut. He had a welding glove on. I'm thinking I burned his fucking arm off. Sure. I, the fact that Bob allowed you, because you guys are probably using rollers and power hammers and presses and all this stuff, it's amazing that he gave you the trust to, sure. to, to do that. Would I mean, he just he, leave you alone? 
Would he just give you the shit and he'd, t- he'd take off and leave you in the shop by yourself? Yeah. I, I mean, oh he would God. be in the shop too. He would be in the office maybe. Um, I mean, and so, I mean, the way it started, so I started out cleaning the shop and then making his mosaic pins. And then it graduated to assembling the handles uh, for him to sculpt and then sculpting those handles. And that was, a, that was probably the, long, the biggest learning curve was figuring out the handle sculpting. Um, and I honestly, I can, I probably did it a couple times. I feel like I at least fucked up two different Damascus Bob Kramer knives that ended up having to get scrapped and started over on. Um, so maybe that's my, my greatest uh, claim to fame, but $10,000 down the drain. Anyways. Oh, God, my stomach's hurting just hearing about that. Can you imagine? Um, yeah. Um, and then from there, but yeah, when, once he so basically uh he would show me walk me through it himself he'd then stand and watch as i would do it myself and as long as he felt good about my ability to do it on my own he was good and he walked away and he would let Fucking me do it good Fucking and good. Um, and so and usually that only took you know a couple couple tries and then he would let me just do it on my own and then i started doing all the handle sculpting for him for let's see i started handle sculpting th- either three or four months after i started working for him so this is maybe early 2009 now like, that's amazing too <clears throat> yeah and I, I just i i picked up on it and i basically did all the handle sculpting there from then on out um for the next whatever two and a half years of working for him um, so you there? So so this is like he's like this. This is like Mr. Miyagi shit. He's making you wax on, wax off. Yeah, it was totally like wax on, wax off, and then walk away and let me do the fucking work. Um, this is like incredible I, training. Well, uh, well, I don't know how I could just I could I don't know if I could walk away like that. I maybe oh. I'm just too much too fucking wound wound too tight. Um, but I don't know if I could do what he did for sure. I don't think I could either. <laughs> I'll tell you another uh, funny story. The yeah, last time I was in a metal shop, I tra- I was tra- we were doing um, we were doing a lot of elevator railings that you know the bumpers that go inside the elevators. So like when you bring your card in, especially for hospitals, it like it won't smash into the wall. A lot of times you'll see elevator mm-hmm. railings. Yeah. And I had to teach this kid how to do these transitions um, between like a land, like a, like basically like imagine like a T, like a yeah. T, and then you'd have to learn how to clean the welds of the T. So it was like a, it was a nice fitting. And I just remember teaching this kid and then leaving him alone. And then 45 minutes later, he brought me something. It was like, he shoved it in a, in a, like a, a chipper. I mean, it was like, Oh my God, you didn't do anything I told you to do. You like, I so when I think I was just like I looked and I was like I don't think you were even listening to one thing that I said, like this is like so out of like not what I said. I I'm almost surprised. So yeah. the fact that he was able to do that for you is just incredible, right? Well, I guess what's crazy to, in my mind is like literally I watched him sculpt one handle, maybe two handles, and then that was it. And and then I just started doing it. And so a lot of it was me taking in from, and it's, I guess it's very, for, I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't want to give myself too much credit, but I think it's, I feel like it's very lucky that I am a very, I, I learn really, really, really well by, by observ- observing people. Like I learned how to snowboard in about one hour going down blue uh, blues in, in, on the first day of ever snowboarding. Like uh, I learned how to slalom ski uh, on water after watching a buddy do it for 45 minutes. Like I, and it's, but this, this is, is sh- this is shit I've never done before in my life. The same with the handle sculpting. I'd never done anything like that before in my life. And I watched him do one. He watched me do one. And then that was it. Like, to, but this I, comes back to third grade. This is third grade Egyptian graph project. This sure. is the same, this is that same attention to detail that you were able to manifest out into the execution of working for Bob. Sure. So you were able to like take on this, you know, this, I said probably the same thing with the salsa dancing. You picked it up so quick that you were taking the yeah. class, she, she hired you to be your, so you had the ability to kind of mimic what this other person was doing, have a, have a physical understanding and a mimicry yeah. in regards to knowing what you're supposed to do. And it's almost more than just learning. It's it's having a deep, deep understanding of what's happening. Right. Yeah, it's it's somehow picking up. I mean, I honestly don't understand how it works, but it's just like somehow picking up on the nuances of of all the little like the positioning of the body and and where exactly and how exactly you're holding a thing to get a certain curve and a shape, you know, or get the belt to flex a certain way and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Um and so yeah. Now you said you said before, and I can't let you get away with not you know I can't get let, let you get away with it. You said that you self sabotage yourself. Why yeah. do you think that ultimately you were self sabotage at the end <laughs> with Bob Kramer? I mean, can't let ult- you. You said it. I can't let you get away with it. Everyone, you know, come on. It, it is not the the most. It's not the proudest moment of my life. But I Bob fired me from working for him. Wow. Um, and. I, it's something I've been trying to, I mean, even still, I, I, I try to process it and figure out what could have happened differently, what I could do now to try to mend things and like trying to figure out if it's even meaningful to mend things with him. I don't know where he's at. You know, we've talked off and on since then, um, not very frequently. Um, but I think, I think I, I, especially after doing kind of like my own personal exploration and understanding and trying to learn about myself and honestly, like talking, like, you know, talk therapy and shit like that for just kind of my own self and trying to, you know, work things out and figure things out for my own life. Um, you know, I think to, to take it all the way back to when I was a little kid, like my dad, my biological father, was a human manifestation of a giant piece of cow shit. Um, And he was not a good person. And honestly, like throughout my whole life through, especially like, especially when I got into middle school and high school, when I started doing sports, I was always looking, um, looking to coaches, especially male figures in my life who I was spending a lot of time with, especially if, you know, a lot of the coaches were also teachers. And so I would gravitate to those coaches and, and really look up to them. And they kind of became those surrogate father figures, but they, you know, those would last maybe a season or so. 
um, I think the one that was probably the 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 best relationship was my my uh, my track and field coach, who was my throws coach as well, uh, who coached me in shot put and discus and whatnot. Um, he was also my English teacher my sophomore year of high school. You know, I did I did track and field four years, so it was four I guess four track seasons and a year of uh, call or not college, but uh, English class with him. Uh, he was he was somebody I always really looked up to, and and e- even in those four years, that 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 amount of time only equates to maybe half of the amount of time that I spent with Bob. Because when I worked for Bob, I was there day in day out, six to eight hours a day for three years. Wow. That's a lot of hours put That's in. A long time. And, and when I reflect on it now, I realize like he became a, another one of those surrogate father figures for me. Yeah. That uh, you know, I really looked up to, you know? Of course. <laughs> Dude, and, I, just to let you know, yeah, I have major father. I have my Charlie Palmer is one of my the father figures. Sure. I have a pile of them. I have like I have like three or four, like Uri Hoffey. Um, my old, my old mentor, Lee tribe, we yeah. ended poorly. The, I was, I had these real, I had the same issues in regards to, I was very, uh, pliable with these father figures. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, th- I think what ultimately ended up being the downfall was me seeing, uh, and feeling towards Bob, like he was that figure. And right. so as a fucking shitty kid would any normal shitty kid would probably, or not shitty kid, but a kid would do to their parents is they, they're pushing buttons all the time. Pushing and, limits. Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, my relationship with Bob. the limits pushed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Basically, you know, it, he was, he is not my father. He is a, 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 a completely separate person from me he has outside of being my boss he he has nothing else to do with me um and so um and so yeah he he had had enough of kind of like i guess i think ultimately there's a lot of peddly little things that built up over time and he just was over it and it was hard too because not only did we spend time together in the shop but we we did lots of dinners outside of the shop hanging out like you know occasionally we'd get together and smoke a little weed or something and and just hang out and just like just like even just me and him like sometimes his wife would be out of town or something like that and me and him would just hang out like I just I would crash on his couch. Like how how many bosses have you had that you have that relationship with? And right. so I it, it was very easy for me to step into that relationship that I've had with those kind of men in my life with previous coaches and teachers with Bob and it you know just it went beyond a point that he could handle anymore and he let me go. Can I say how how impressed I am with you that you're able to talk about that and to be able to express it in a very objective way. You know, I don't think I'm serious. It's not easy. (laughs) It's not easy, dude. I'm telling you, I know it's not easy because you could have, I mean, I, I, if I had told that story, I'm like, I don't know. The guy was an asshole. And that would have been the end. (laughs) You know, I don't think I could have been as, I don't think I could have been as self-reflecting as what you had just said. And I, I, you're much more mature than you give yourself credit for. Well, I mean, I mean, what is this? So that happened, that happened 10 years ago. 
in 2011, October huh. 10th, 2011, he fired me. And so hmm. I've had time to think about it. But only you really like in the last year, it's been, I've really kind of made that connection and realized that that element of the relationship where, where up to that point, I was like, oh, he's just being a fucking, uh, you know, right. t- uptight white guy, as he would refer to himself. Right. He, he's just being uptight. But I realized that I was basically kind of putting him in that position that he didn't ask for. He wasn't wanting. And on the business side of things, it it was not making him happy. And so, he, yeah, he made that call to let me go. I think you should and write him a letter. Hard. I've written him I think letters. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, good for I give you a lot of credit. <laughs> I give you a lot of credit for doing that. It's not easy. Yeah, it's hard. And then you can't expect someone to like, you know, just because you, you know, you give it out to them, you can't expect them to be, oh, no. you can't expect them to react in the way you want. Look, you're a fucking good dude for doing that. It takes, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of growth. It takes a lot of, a lot of aging to get to wise enough to be able to say something like that too. Yeah. Ah, you're impressive. That's very impressive. Look, it, you did what happened, happened 10 years yeah. ago. You're in your twenties. Now you're in your thirties. You've, you've, you've been able to reflect on it. Fucking right. good. Well, and it was kind of, <laughs> it was kind of no, pinnac- pinnacle of those days, like when I was really starting to come into my own and that self-confidence thing. And I was out, you know, meeting girls at bars and, and dating around a lot. And so I, I don't know, it was this weird bachelor time for me too. And, hmm. um, yeah. So I, so I don't know if that really played into it or not, but it was well, just, it, it doesn't matter. Time. I mean, the yeah. fact that you're able to look back on that and to have a very clear understanding of what happened with not just at the time, but like looking back at it with some perspective. Yeah. I mean, that's the number one thing you can do in order. I mean, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not being blinded by what happened. You're, you're very aware of it. And I, and I think that in regards to how you feel about your relationship with Bob and how you feel about your relationship <laughs> with your father and how you feel your, your relationship with you. Sure. Fantastic. Yeah, it's well, fantastic. I, it's, I not think, easy. No, uh, I think you know everybody has a role to play, and everybody has a, a some sense of responsibility to the way things go. And right. it was me, and it still is me, trying to take ownership of mistakes or bad calls I had made, and or th- like the whole thing of like putting him in the position as like a fatherly figure that um I, I'm trying to take ownership of that and how that had affect that relationship and business relationship as well. Um and so yeah, I mean honestly it's been a couple of years since I talked to him last. Um but yeah. It, saw, it was a, it was hard. It was a hard time. That led into a hard time what? for sure. This is like it's gotta be a cleansing feeling just to say it. Yeah, I mean, you're looking back on it. You're looking back at it with this, you know. The, no, I'm serious. I'm being very yeah, serious. No, I'm, I'm laughing feeling... because it 100 percent is. Yeah, for sure. It's cathartic, oh, I as I think people would say. Um, well, I like that. I like cathartic. Yeah. So let's just now let's just kind of get into it. Yeah. At what point after this did you get a call from Forge and Fire? Is it was there a lot of time involved? <laughs> there was a lot of time in between. There so was what did you, like all right, years. so let's just let's get into let's get into so you're not with Bob anymore. What's yeah. the game plan? Game plan. Well, all right. So like you were saying before, you know, when did I think knife making could 
I could do the knife making. I honestly, again, I think it was really at that point, it was Bob's thing. Um, it was only when I started making Damascus in the last year that I started feeling a sense of ownership in the work that we were creating. Um, and, but still it was, to me, it was just another thing on, uh, to add to my list of things that I've been good at. And, but it never really felt like it was my thing. Um, and so I wanted to get, but at that point I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. And what I knew best was working in restaurants. So, I started working in a restaurant again, and that's when I started working at a pizzeria, actually, and got into making pizzas. Um, and and then uh, while I was working out a plan to move to Denver, actually, um, that you know I felt like they had a cool food scene there. Um, I had friends that were living out there. There were a lot of pretty girls out there, so <laughs> I figured why not try it? Um, just like just throwing, you know. I don't know the term. But caution to the going wind. Going with the caution, throwing caution to the wind, yeah. Uh, and I went for it. And that didn't last very long. Uh, I, I was there, I think, a couple months. And I realized all, all I could think, I was, I was constantly coming up with Damascus pattern ideas. And after my experience working with Bob, I had my own thoughts of how, you know, an, a chef's knife could be designed. And so I've started working on what is now my chef's knife design is. And so this is, I guess this is 2012, um, that I'm, I'm in Denver trying to figure this out. And while I was there, I was trying to I was like, shit, I want to get back into knives. Um, I didn't have any gear or equipment though. And I didn't know anybody who did knives in the area. And so I tried, I, and I was, I was aware of the American Blazemen Society, but I didn't know how to find any information about uh, knife makers in the area or how to like Google search that. And I couldn't find anything. And so my plan, I knew uh, of a knife maker that I'd met a few years before named uh, Dave Lish, who had a shop in Seattle, he he's a custom knife maker himself and, and a blacksmith, uh, an ornamental iron worker, and he had a shop as well as a school right next to his shop uh, in in this building in Seattle, uh, and so I moved back to Washington. I started working at a different restaurant and started basically making plans and putting things together, and. Um, and started going up to visit Dave and kind of work out a deal so I could basically work out of the school side of his shop um, when he didn't have classes going. And he, hmm. you know, the shop was set up. It had like six grinders in it, six, and I mean, it was set up for six to eight students. So it had all the gear for that. If you've ever been in a New England school of metalwork, it was set up uh, equipment wise, very similar to that. Um, but it sat empty except for maybe a couple of weekends a month. Um, and so it was a great opportunity for me to get in there and start working and making knives. And at this point, I had met my wife, um, but we were dating long distance. She was teaching English to uh, Korean students in South Korea. So she wow. was living in South Korea when we were dating long distance. And uh, I was trying to figure out this knife thing. And... um and and we got it, you know, Dave and I came to an, an understanding and I started working out of his school. And that's kind of where things pick back up. Um, I think a, a big uh, th- thanks is owed to um, 
Daniel O'Malley actually at Blade Gallery too because he uh, who's it Dave had been selling work to Daniel his culinary knives and um, part of the deal of me working out at Dave's shop was that we needed somewhere for that work to be sold you can't he couldn't afford because he was you know he was putting up uh, basically the materials and um and and the use of the equipment I didn't I wasn't bringing hardly anything uh and at the time i was basic i was like pseudo homeless um i was surfing on friends couches i I didn't really have a solid place to have mail sent to um for like a year after i moved back from denver um it was took about a year before i got into solid housing um and in that time i was that it was yeah, in that time, it was before, actually, I started working at a, at a Dave's shop. And so it was once I finally got some solid housing, I was I started working at Dave's shop. And and so, yeah, so we, to get back to Daniel, I couldn't afford for stuff to just be made and then have nowhere to go. Like, we right. needed to turn things around. We needed to turn product. And part of that was Daniel O'Malley signing on to buy um, work as a retailer. So basically getting a retailer's discount to to turn around and flip. And fortunately, with my uh, experience working with Bob, obviously I had some skills that I was bringing to it already, as well as kind of like, as they like to refer to it as part of my pedigree, um, as well as working with Dave, um, that helped helped us price things in a, in a, a nice spot, as well as be able to move things pretty easily. Um, to start. And so I started working alongside Dave. Um, you know, I, I learned, I most like the foundational stuff I learned about forging. I, I learned from observing Dave forge under his power hammers and then basically going back over to the school side because the power hammers were on his private side of the shop. And I would go over to the school side and, and then try to essentially replicate what I observed him doing under the, under the power hammers on his, on under the forging press. Um, and then I would, that's when I started forging actually forging blades Hmm. under bob we forged tons of damascus but um i never forged a single blade working with bob i i think i only saw him forge maybe a couple knives um while i was working there um because most of the stuff was stock removal right um which which is a big part of why i have no problem with stock stock removal, honestly, because you know, fucking Bob Kramer is the biggest. He's the godfather, as you said. He's a stock removal knife maker. Right. There's nothing fucking wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> that whole thing. That whole thing is that so whole conversation. Is the whole. Yeah. Yeah, but you only do this. That's this is. It's it's just it's just so over. It's overblown. It's just enough. No. Nobody can no. just leave me alone. As long as you're not <laughs> lying. As long as right. you're not lying, then it's like it oh, doesn't matter. You know, it's just I, nonsense. Yeah. Transparency is is key. <laughs> it's just nonsense. It just becomes. It just. It's a. It's wasteful. It's yeah. wasteful. So I'm working at Dave's, out of Dave's school. Um, I'm learning from him the uh, kind of like blade forging, and he's learning from me about chef's knives, and um, and then I'm, I I start working on trying to get my own stuff together. So I can start setting up my own shop because basically I was, I was living in Olympia and then I was driving an hour and a half 
north to work in Seattle. And I, I have friends up in Seattle. So I was crashing with friends for three, four days at a time. Um, thank God for them. And then I, and, and then I was going back to Olympia and basically not doing anything. <laughs> I think, or maybe I was working in some like part-time, uh, actually I was working a part-time bakery gig for like an six months of overlap time between, uh, working in Seattle and, and being in Olympia. And then, um, the, the, uh, the knife work out of Seattle became enough to sustain me that I didn't need to work the bakery job anymore. And so I wow. stopped working the bakery job. How, how good of a feeling was that? It was awesome because, uh, the, the, the gal I was working for, she had a really great business. She, they were making really great stuff, but it was just, it was spreading me fucking thin. Right. And when I was working in Seattle, I was only there, like I said, for three or four days. So I was trying to make those three or four days really count. So I was working 12, 14 hour days, go home to my friend's house, literally just sleep. Um, and then wake up and go back to the shop and, <sighs> and try to get in, a basically a full work week in three days. Um, and so that was a big key for me wanting to start my own shop, um, and get my own thing going down in Olympia because that's where I wanted to live. I had, I had no interest in living in Seattle. I couldn't afford to live in Seattle, honestly, because like I said, I had only started living at a solid address at this point for about eight months. You know, I, wow. I stopped being pseudo homeless for eight months and I, I couldn't afford to keep doing the back and forth. And so, uh, I, f I finally started getting things going and, um, got my own shop space together, got equipment together together. And, uh, and that's when I ran, I think, what was it? It was a crowdfunding project. 2014 is when I did that crowdfunding project. Um, it wasn't super successful and hilariously, like I didn't realize, but Quentin Middleton was running one himself, like at the same fucking time, um, or basically the same time. And but it earned me some cash to get some money flowing and, and get equipment into the shop. Um, I would not do that again. The, the <laughs> crowdfunding? Huge, the crowdfunding, no. I, wouldn't, I would not do that again. I, it was... It, it, I'm thankful for it, but I, I wish uh, I'd definitely kind of gone... As, I don't know. I've, I felt like I had to rush. I was like in a, in a fucking race to make things happen. And really, I should have gone... A, I think a little slower. I think it would have been better either to have been able to save up and afford those machines, like the basic equipment, right. like a grinder and a drill press, all that stuff on my own, or taking out a small business loan, like a small, small business loan, um, just to get the basic equipment and tools I needed to get going that could be paying back pretty easily. I would have, I think I would have been better off doing that. Um, but it's, but, but you anyways. got it done. I mean, you got, I mean, yeah. You get, it, it's interesting because. You know your history in regards to the you know starting the knife making and the baking and stuff like that. It's a, that's what that's kind of it's very similar to what Nick Anger did too. You know there is a, right. like a, there's these similarities that a lot of these guys have or you guys have, where you're trying to figure out a way in which to just to make knives, and yeah. there is something to I think that there's a lot of dis, there's different um, there's different uh, motivations that a lot of hobbyists do. You know, I, I, I feel your desperation to kind of make it happen so you can make the shop. Like I felt I, when you tell the story, I feel the desperation. I don't want to say desperation. I mean urgency. 
you feel the yeah. urgency of you taking these jobs in Seattle and these bakeries in order to get your feet off the ground and start this business. A lot of times, and I feel like a lot of guys, especially, you know, guys getting into it, there's not a sense of urgency. You know what I mean? They dabble. Sure. And then when they dabble right. enough, they just like make the plunge. I can feel your urgency to make this work. Yeah. Well, I I think the urgency is there because I want it to be successful. Right. I don't want to end up being homeless again. I don't want to necessarily go back to working in restaurants unless I really have to. So yeah, there's definitely a sense of urgency to make this happen sooner than later because I already have, uh, at that point, I already had close to a year of success working with, uh, you know, with Daniel O'Malley as the retailer and, um, and being, and being able to make stuff and sell stuff. Um, and so I, I, I knew it was a viable way of making a living. I just, I, I want I couldn't afford to do it. Um, like I said, with it, with driving back and forth to Seattle and then the cost of working out of Dave's shop, I just, I couldn't afford it either. Um, at that point. And so, um, and so, and yeah, know, it was, it was really no, trying to get, get you have into no history space. of business either. You're doing this, None. you're doing this all <laughs> yeah. with no history of entrepreneurship or business. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. God, I feel yeah. the urgency. Urgency is the word because it's like, all right, I finally have something. It's yeah. not working in a, I, in my, for some reason, I always think you, when you said you worked in a movie theater, I'm thinking I'm seeing you like behind the popcorn machine or something like that. No, I, I didn't even do. I was just the usher. I would tear tickets or sweep the <laughs> sweep see, the, the this is the, the hallways and the and the. Now theaters. you have something. Now you have something, yeah. and you can tell the urgency of like, okay, now I actually have something, and now I have to learn how to be a business person. Ugh. Sure, that uh, sucks. Yeah, I guess it's yeah, it's that feeling of feeling like you have something but it's you you just barely have a grip of it you barely right. have a hold of it and you could you can see it slipping out of your fingers so easily with just like the smallest mistake oh. um so, so the wind that's where fortune, i was come from so the yeah. fortune fire when so that must have made you when they got got a hold of you you must have thought <laughs> all right this is my big chance <laughs> all right so here here's my fortune fire story uh so when they were actually filming the pilot that Jason Knight was part of. Um, they filmed it out of Dave Lish's studio. Right. And it was right after I stopped working in that studio space. And so... And for the um, listeners, if you listen to the Jason Knight episode of Knife right. Talk, he tells the whole backstory. Now we have a, now we have a new story. That's, I like this. I like this. <laughs> a new angle. This is a yeah. new angle. <clears throat> yeah, so I had been working in that shop up until basically just before that. Uh and this is in 2014. I got so it, it was basically the weeks leading up to my marriage with my wife uh in 2014 on August 9th. Um were the last weeks that basically I was going to be working out of that shop um which worked for Dave because he had this thing going on with the studio. Um, that was going to be filming this pilot. And so that was my last week's there. They filmed the studio pilot there. He was very like hush hush about it. Um, 
I was still on good terms, uh, like chatting with Dave uh, quite often and all that stuff. And so, you know, I kind of knew what was going on, but he he was, you know, the contracts they make you sign to be on that show are f- like, especially if you have no experience in that kind of realm of TV and all that kind of stuff are super fucking scary. They're talking yeah. about how they own the rights to your voice and your image and all this shit in perpetuity until the end of the fucking universe and all this stuff. It's, it's crazy. I don't know. It's terrifying. They basically, it makes you feel like they own your fucking ass right. forever. Um, but it, that's not the real case. Um, but anyways. Um, and so... You know, they do it. I I kind of get a little bit uh, of the story of how everything went and some of the, like Jason talks talks about people catching on fire, I think, uh, and people's knives breaking. And obviously he ultimately won. And I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And I had talked to some people um, uh, about, well, not only Dave, um, but other knife makers who kind of knew about what was happening. And at this point, I had never actually met Jason. I I had peripherally knew of him because I knew of his work. I knew makers who knew him, but I'd never met Jason before in my life. Um, But definitely had a a solid, healthy respect for his talent. Um, I didn't realize he was the competitor that won that episode, or the the pilot. Right. Um, And Dave... When I ultimately was like, man, I'm thinking I want to try this. Dave was like, basically said, you're out of your fucking league if you think you're going to do this because these are the best knife makers in the world or in the country that are going to be doing this. And you've only been doing this shit for about a year. And I thought I was okay at it. So um, That must have been like in the red flag (laughs) in front of the bull. Right, exactly. It was like, well, and it was part of, you know, I've always been kind of like an underdog in a way. Like when I played football to go back to high school, I was always the shortest guy on the field. But I, but because people would underestimate me, they didn't realize how strong I was, how quick I was. Like I ran a four five forty in high school. I was fucking fast. So you had. If something anybody to prove. knows what that means, that's fucking fast. <laughs> yeah. I so you. I kind of felt like I had something to prove you for had sure. To prove. <clears throat> and so. And, but I didn't want it to just be about proving something. And I, some of the makers that I, who I really respect were like, you know, they're just going to make a, knife makers look like idiots. This is going to be the, a very bad thing for the industry, for custom knife makers. And I was like, oh, maybe I can go on there. Whether or not I win or lose, I can at least be a strong representative for the craft as best as I can. And ultimately, that was my drive to do the show. I mean, and there was some of it was like, oh, maybe this will help business wise, which it definitely did not. <laughs> but yeah. ultimately, I wanted to be but a good representative know? for the craft. Of course, you yeah. How know. would I know? There's you no way. Because they didn't even, I mean, you were in the first season, right? Yeah, I was in the yeah. exactly. Well, how would you That's know? Insane. You wouldn't know. <laughs> Nobody. Yeah, exactly. There's no. Yeah, there's never been a show. You don't know what to expect. So yeah, the first season you're walking in there blind. You don't know anything. Um, versus the, even the season two people, like they have at least that first season to have watched before they decide to make that call to go on the show themselves. Hmm. But, um, but that's how I got into the Fortune Fire thing. I, you know, I, I find, I, you know, the whole Forge and Fire thing, we talk about it nonstop and we don't have to go into it too much, but I definitely feel, I definitely feel, I definitely understand 
the feeling of being taken advantage of. I, I always with TV in general, we've created, there's, there's this idea of what real is and what not real is and what being on a TV, being on a TV show or being on a YouTube. I really sure. feel like sometimes I can't help but think that some of the people who are on this show are completely taken advantage of by this show. I can't help myself. Because oh, 100%. It, because like you you look at those like you were saying you look at these law you these legal things you're just like what what is a non disclosure agreement wait a second what is, what's per- perpetuity mean you know and I just feel like right. it it's it, I give you a lot of credit for taking the plunge to doing it yeah, <laughs> but yeah it's it was, like, I mean yeah <laughs> I mean I I've been for I was fortunate I had a friend who was an Emmy winning uh, Emmy winning producer out of portland who i i consulted i was like dude i'm gonna send you this contract this is a kid i went to high school with um and and he looked over and he's like you know this is all very standard for competition show stuff so don't worry about it it's fine it's the standard i was like that really helped me a lot and he said you know he gave me the best advice which because i was still really nervous about the fact that they can basically edit you to sound like the biggest fucking jackass ever <laughs> and so right. i just wanted uh, or so his advice was uh, really you know what they get of you and what they ultimately show on tv is is a is a distillation it's a caricature so if you're just you that i know you to be um the good guy i know you to be you'll be fine because they're only going to have good footage of you to show there's nothing that they they would have to work really hard to edit it to make you look like a jackass. Right. I was like, and he's like, and they, especially if this is the first season, they don't have that in their budget. So, I think you're fine. You'll be good. I was like, okay. So that that also helped me a lot. Um. So it was a good. Of, it was a good experience. Yeah, it was a great experience, actually. You know, that's how I met Jamie Lundell, who who was from Dragon's Breath Forge, whose shop I ultimately joined a few years later um, and worked out of for a couple of years. And as well as the other guys on the show, you know, I, I've, I've only made friends from doing that show, even with the people from who were working behind the scenes. Um, you know, I've only made friends from doing that show. So I, I don't really hold any grudge or anything against it i i honestly have stopped watching it um because after the fourth season and maybe part of the fifth season like they were really reaching for some of the some of the the things they had the the judge or the competitors do that were just really silly and then i was just like i can't fucking watch this anymore yeah. and i i basically stopped watching and yeah so we i we're going to have to make this a two parter and you're going to have to come back on because I know that there's a, you have, there's a lot more in you. I oh can't, boy. yeah, but no, Just, I know yeah, it. We're, only, that's we're only halfway there. We're only halfway <laughs> this, there. See, this is the good I've been part. making knives for almost eight years and we're only two years in. <laughs> this is, this is why you have an open invite to come back on. You open invite. Okay. We're going to give, we're going to, we're going to, th- that this makes this the two parter. So now, <laughs> cause this is yeah. fascinating. I mean, this is this is I I'm look we've been talking for three years and this is such yeah. a fascinating uh, view of you that I like I I've learned so much more so much more and another thing I've learned is we might have to change the time of of doing knife talk because I think I need you more awake 
I think we don't. I think we're giving you a bad time. <laughs> you have to do it at six o'clock in the morning, and I, I, I feel like we're losing, a, we're losing a piece of you because you're sleep, sure. you don't get enough sleep. We're gonna have to. Well, we're gonna I mean, have I'm, to have a business. I'm going meeting. to bed at a decent time. It's just. It's. I know. It's I. I'm literally to, like 20 minutes after I wake up. <laughs> we're gonna have. We're gonna have to do. We're gonna have to figure something out. We're gonna have to. We. I need. I. I feel like knife talk needs. You need a, a wake, Marco. <laughs> well, it's all working out. It's listen. Hey, listen. Our podcast, Knife Talk, is yeah. the number one knife-related podcast on the planet, and yeah. it's only getting better. Like this yeah. last, I would say, this last six months have been the tightest. And every episode is more and more fun. We're we're loosening up, and I have such a blast with you, with you and Craig. It's just like, yeah, I, 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 I am so. so thrilled that our the sponsors are so happy. They're paying for a year in advance. I feel like we're our chemistry. All three of us is very good. I think we have a great time, and I'm very I'm very pleased that you. I'm pleased that you're in it. I'm pleased that you're in it. I want, but I feel like you don't get enough sleep, and I feel like it's my fault. But we're gonna work that out. <laughs> we'll figure something out. So we'll what's next for you? We're gonna have to two part this one. We're gonna have to get you back oh, in, so like in the spring, and get you to? back in the spring. What's 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 next for you? <laughs> Just in general in life right yeah, now. Yeah, we're gonna we gotta wrap this we gotta wrap this thing up. Yeah. Yeah. So um right now I'm looking to you know, I've so I've been doing customs now. I've been on my own um since or I've been, you know, working under my own moniker, my own name since the middle oh, what is it? Like January August, sorry, August of two thousand thirteen. So we're going on eight years now. And and it's been customs this whole time. And so this year I'm starting to mix it up and change my business model a little bit to do more kind of ready-made stuff. Because right. honestly, I've been, um, you know, over, over the years, especially in the last few years, uh, I've been experimenting more with patterns and stuff. And I have a lot of blades in my shop that are are great knives they just don't have homes because they were experimental patterns that um i had to forge into a blade to see what that pattern ultimately looked like or whatever or maybe a customer i forged a blade for a customer and the customer was like oh you know i was hoping it would be a little bit more this that or the other thing <laughs> so i'm like all right fine i set the knife down i'd go move on with something that was going to work for them so i have all these knives sitting around um and and they don't have homes. And so what I want to start doing is mixing up my business model in a way where I, those kind of become my bread and butter because uh, the custom work is I agonize over the details in the custom work. Uh, like you so kindly acknowledged earlier, I, I spend a lot of time on those details. Um, it's like very specific details on the heel height or the thickness at the spine or the length of the blade all all kinds like all kinds of stuff and with these kind of ready made knives um they're still all handmade with the same attention to detail but the specific details are they're not tailored to anybody in specific so there it takes a little bit of that kind of agonizing edge off where the heel height is whatever the heel height is. The length right. is whatever the length is. All of that stuff. Um, and it takes a little bit of that pressure off. And those those are a lot easier to make. Those are a lot easier to get out. And so I'm going to kind of flip my business model on its head. So um, it takes some of that monetary pressure off of those custom builds. And, and so I can be a little bit more relaxed about my custom orders. Um, 
and the and then stress I feel around building those custom knives. That's probably the biggest change that's happening right now. Um, I'm looking forward to hopefully being up in New York this this fall. I was just talking to Austin about Maker Camp. I heard. I heard. I, I got a message from yeah. Cliff. Got a message from Cliff. Nice. nice. Yeah, I don't have right now. I don't have any plans for any hammer-ins or any shows or anything like that. Um, just because everything that's going on right now, as you know, is or uh, COVID orthodox as you are. Um, you know, it's just there's still too many variables right now for me. I talk, I talked um, to my COVID rabbi in regards to October, yeah, and the verdict sure. is not in yet in regards to whether or not I could do it or not. Sure. So I'm hoping. Yeah. I mean, we had a, uh, there was a, my, my, uh, Orthodox rabbi, <laughs> COVID Orthodox <laughs> rabbi. And I had a long conversation last night and, yeah. um, I'm hoping that I'm going to be there in, in, in at maker's camp. A lot of it's going to yeah. have to be based on if I can get the vaccine sooner rather than later. Right. Yeah. Same here. <sighs> this so. goddamn COVID has got to stop. We got to, we got to get this under yeah. control. It's too much. Yeah. It's too much for people. Luckily for guys like you and guys like me, it's steady stream. Everything knock on wood, knock on right. wood. We're still I mean, nothing wood in this shop, in this car, but it's hopefully, yeah, you know, I got some hopefully right some, you know, we're, we're doing all right. I mean, we're doing all right. Yeah. Dude, you got an open invite. I don't say this to everybody, and it's starting to become a thing. Be, be, I need a two-parter. <laughs> we're going to have to do a two-parter. I'm going to get you back in the spring. And then we're gonna right. we're gonna get a two parter in. We're gonna get a two parter in. You're fa- I've talked to you for three years, and you're still a very fascinating person. You're an, you're a very extraordinary young man with a lot of with a lot of maturity, based on your well, age. I, it's true. I really appreciate it, uh, dude. And I'm I, telling you, I thank you. You know, I really respect you. And, you know, we've even outside of Knife Talk, we've we've first met at Blade Show and I think, what, 2015 or something like that. Um, you know, I, I've had nothing but respect and appreciation for you and and your outlook and, and your insight and approach to knife making and the business and everything. Uh, and you're just all around in general a fucking good guy so look at you i'm glad to have you in my thank life. you well i'm yeah. i see you as i told will stelter i see you like my younger brother and i appreciate it and i'm not just saying <laughs> that we because now we don't we have not just a personal relationship but it's like i've got a business relationship too i mean we're we're like yeah, we're sure. like kind of you know hooked to the chain with, with knife talk and craig just sent us a check so we just you know we're <laughs> like you know it's so that it's a it's a very good we, everything's good you're the man you're very you're you got to give yourself a little bit more credit emotionally than you give yourself because you are very mm. you're much more aware than you think. With that said, ladies and germs, I know you already follow Mareko Momasi Momasi Fire Arts on Instagram. <laughs> I know you already watched to see you can stop DMing me asking me how how asking me how he does the S grinds because he puts it on Instagram. He puts on his pattern <laughs> welder welder Wednesdays. He he put it all out there. Go follow him and go ask him. Don't ask me yeah. about the S grind. I don't know nothing about it. <laughs> I don't literally not. That's I mean, do, yeah. you have no idea. People are intimidated by you, and then they come to me asking the questions for you, and I'm like, ask him. He'll tell you. Guys, <sighs> listen to Knife Talk. You can hear this guy all yeah. the time, and then he's coming back in the spring. I promise. And we're gonna get a two parter in because this was too much fun. 
Thank you, everybody. Go get you. Help me out just a little bit. Thanks again, Axe Wax. Guys, go buy some Axe Wax, would you? Go to axewax.us. Good stuff. Go buy a couple pucks. It's good for me because I'm saving up for a new bandsaw. And I just want it. I want it. I want the full blast podcast to pay for this bandsaw so I can start to make more sculpture. Okay. That's, yeah. the, that's the plan. So I have a little kitty and I'm filling the kitty with money and then, and then I'm going to buy a bandsaw. <laughs> so Is guys, one of those little Asian ones with the hand waving. I'm going to get, yeah, I'm going to get one of them. I'm going to get one of them too. <laughs> that's part of the kitty. You're going to be one of them Asian hand waving kitties too. So yeah, guys, good luck I have some can. good episodes coming up. Brian House is going to be in the house. Owner Kaglar is going to be in the house. Salem Straub is going to be in the house. I got a few other guys, and I got a special one that I'm, I've got to keep my mouth shut until it happens. But we're going to get him, too, and then we're in business, everybody. So if it ain't Friday, I don't know. I have no idea. So I'll well, see you next Friday, everybody. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thanks, Morocco. Thank you once again. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.